Our reading this evening is from Amos chapters 3 and 4. Hear this word, people of Israel, the word of the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Do two walk together unless they've agreed to do so? Does a lion roar when it has no prey? Does it growl in its den when it has caught nothing? Does a bird swoop down to a trap on the ground where no bait is there? Does a trap spring up from the ground if it has not caught anything? When a trumpet sounds in the city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Surely the sovereign God does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophecy? Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashod and of the fortresses of Egypt. Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who stores up in their fortresses what they have plundered and looted. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun your land, pull down your strongholds, and plunder your fortresses. This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd rescues from a lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites living in Samaria be rescued with only the head of a bed and a piece of fabric from a couch. Hear this and testify against the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. Hear this word. Your cows of Bashan on the Mount Samaria You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through the breaches in the wall and will be cast out towards Harmon, declares the Lord. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, and yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. 
locusts devour your fig and olive trees. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues amongst you, as I did in Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword, along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore... This is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He who forms the mountains, who creates the wind, and who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn into darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord God Almighty is his name. This is God's word. Good evening, uh, my name's Matt, if we've not met. And uh, if we were like sort of pucker, fully, full-fat Anglican church, at the end of all our readings, we'd have, uh, this is the word of the Lord, and the congregation would reply, thanks be to God. Anyone done that? Well done. Well done, you Anglicans. <laughs> and uh, you get to the end of Amos 3 and 4 and think, but this is the word of the Lord, that was wonderfully half-hearted, thank you. <laughs> so right, it's not a children's show, I won't make you do it again. But uh, this is the word of the Lord, and it is the word that we need. So we give thanks, and we pray that he'll help us understand it. Let's do that. Our great God and Father, you revealed to your servant Isaiah that compared to humans, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord to us this evening. And that is true of your judgment. But in Isaiah, it is most true of your salvation. Your ways are not our ways. And so, fathers, we come to consider you and consider you as the God who will not allow indulgent, spoilt children in his family. Would we know you rightly as a good father, as a God who is prepared to take nails upon his hands, bear the weight of sinful man, in order to have a people who are transformed and children who live for him. Father, would your spirit be at work so we become those sort of people we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, being a slightly, on occasion, dull bloke, I am. Um, now, I recently read an article uh, on insurance, as you do, and uh, particularly on why insurance companies don't pay out. Uh, and being a kind-hearted sort of bloke, I thought I might share it with you, so you don't make these mistakes. Here are some of the reasons that insurance companies do not pay out. If you don't know what insurance means and never taken it out, that's fine. You'll learn. But uh, car insurance, uh, the number one reason that they don't pay out is if you forget to mention an offence. So you get your three points, and three years later, you take out insurance, uh, but you forget to tell them you've got your three points, and you get a prang, and they say, well, sorry, you didn't, you didn't expose everything correctly, so no, we're not paying to have your car repaired. Ouch. Bit mean. What about that? Or uh, medical insurance, did you know, that can often be invalidated by drinking? So for those of you who like to go skiing, and for those of you who like a little tipple at lunchtime when you go skiing, if you have a little tipple at lunchtime and then have an accident, you could not be insured with certain companies. Oh, small print has its uses. 
Uh, that's a bit mean-spirited, isn't it? Well, you know, watch out. Or our household insurance. It's the third and last one because it's getting very exciting. Um, <laughs> if you are burgled when on holiday and your insurer can prove that you posted photos and declared, I'm not at home, I'm on holiday for two weeks, they're not obliged to pay. Ouch. Anyone ever used social media and bragged about, look at my beach, hmm, ever done that? <laughs> well, you may have nothing worth stealing, but if you were burgled, you may not be insured. Ooh. Well, that was very exciting. And thus ends this evening's lesson about insurance. <laughs> I tell you this because I would hate to th you to think that you're protected and you're safe when you're not. And that is the issue for Amos's audience. They think they're safe. They think they're protected. They think no harm can come to them and they are not safe or protected. Uh, some are looking at this midweek, and uh, uh, if you're leading a Bible study, you'd be pleased to know that now the sermons will run ahead of the Bible studies. That may be of some use to you, depends how competent I am. But uh, you'll know, some of you then, that this is 760 BC that uh, Amos is uh, uh, speaking, and therefore this gets written down. And the news headlines of 760 BC could sound a little bit like this. Uh, good evening, this is the 10 o'clock news. I am Hugh, son of Edward, son of Amadab, son of Malachi, whatever it is. I, I won't go on with the Welsh accent of Hugh Edwards. But the news headlines will be something like this. Street parties have been held all over the nation today to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the coronation of King Jeroboam II. People have been celebrating his fabulous rule under which Israel has flourished so magnificently. We'll show you footage of the military parades celebrating his great military victories over all our enemies. The fact that he has expanded the empire of Israel to levels not seen since Solomon 200 years ago. There have been enormous military parades in the capital city, Samaria, showing that we do have the strongest military in the whole of the region. Religious ceremonies at Bethel to give thanks for the king and the extraordinary affluences he's brought, that he has brought to the nation were also carried out throughout the day. And that's how they spoke in 760 BC. <laughs> but that's the context into which Amos is writing. Amos has said at the end, you hear last week in chapters one and the end of chapter two, Israel, you're going. You're going to be destroyed. You're going to be invaded by an enemy army. It's going to be Assyria is going to come in and wipe you off the map. And all the people say, you are laughing, aren't you, Amos? We are affluent. We've got more money than any other country in the region. And we're the, we're the regional superpower. We've got more missiles, chariots, uh, than anyone else in the region. We are wealthy. We are militarily fantastic. We're at the zenith of our empire. We've never known it so good, Amos. And we've got God. You know, we go and sort of do our bit at the, at the, at the altars every so often. And God will protect us. How on earth can you say that we're going to be destroyed? And so these middle chapters, chapters three to six, are Amos seeking to persuade them. Now, you got it wrong. You think you're safe, but you're not. It starts off with these three judgment oracles, you might call them. Uh, chapter three, verse one, hear this word, people of Israel. 
Uh, and then the second one, chapter 4, verse 1, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Uh, and then next week, we'll look at chapter 5, verse 1, hear this word, Israel. Li- will you listen up? Because you just don't know what you're talking about. You are going to be destroyed, and let me explain why that is. Now, for you and, us, for you and me here this evening, it's a long way away, 760 BC, and yet the issue's cut in a similar sort of way. Often we can think we're safe in this life because of, I don't know, our wealth, the economy, the military. We have God and we do a bit of stuff for him and he's made promises to us. So we think we'll be protected, we're okay, everything will go okay in this life and into the next. And Amos says, well, are you sure? Are you sure you haven't misunderstood? Because I'm not sure all of you are safe, he says. So three things they get wrong in the text tonight. Uh, And Amos says, or here's the Lord speaking. Israel, you've twisted my promise. Chapter three, verses one to eight. Secondly, you've trusted in false fortresses, 3, 9 to 4, 5. And then thirdly, you've ignored my warnings into chapter 4 and verses 6 to 13. You've made these three mistakes. And because of that, you you think you're safe, but you are not. And we need to learn these lessons so we don't make these mistakes. You've twisted my promise. You've trusted false fortresses. You've ignored my warnings. And so he says at the end of this passage, behold your God. Are you ready for him? Let's look at it then. Uh, First, uh, uh, chapter three, verses one to eight. You've twisted my promise, says the Lord. Chapter three, verse one. Uh, Hear this word, people of Israel. The word the Lord has spoken against you. Uh, Forgive me for doing this. That's a bit too strong. That's an interpretation. Hear this word I've said about you. Uh, the word translated against, it's more neutral than against. Now, in one sense, it's fair enough because he is being critical. But imagine you heard Amos speaking as in a neutral term, which the term in Hebrew is just purely neutral. Hear this word, people of Israel. The word the Lord has spoken about you, about the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. Now, you could easily uh, uh, listen to that and think, yes, that's right, Israel in 760 BC, that's right. All these blessings the Lord has given us because we're God's family. Wonderful. And uh, God has um, redeemed us. He brought us out of slavery to Egypt. Marvelous. And um, he chose us out of all the peoples, all the ethnic groups on the earth. He chose us and not others. We're fantastically blessed. We're, We're God's family. We're adopted. We're redeemed. We're chosen. That is fantastic. We're so blessed. Yes, you are a wonderfully blessed Israel. And the second half of chapter of verse two, therefore I will punish you for your sins. Oh. But but we're blessed. Yeah. And you've done nothing with those blessings. Therefore I will punish you for your sins. And that becomes slightly unsettling for you if you're a Christian, perhaps. Because every Christian could say, oh, I'm part of God's family. He's adopted me. Yeah, yeah. 
I'm redeemed. He redeemed me from slavery to, to sin and Satan. Yeah, yeah. And I'm chosen before the creation of the world, life before the dawn of time. That's me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I will punish you for all your sins. Whoa. Let me try and, let's try and understand this correctly. God does adopt us into his family. But he will not have spoilt children. I scribbled down on the sheets. I don't know if we managed to conjure it up, Dave, on the screen. A table. Let me try and show you the parallels between then and now. So we're talking about the nation of Israel. Now I'm individual Christian believers. And there are differences but some similarities. Now, the nation of Israel, God said to them, I make a promise with you, I make a covenant with you, and I will never break that. And he doesn't. So even at the end, it was worth turning on, we'll get there in in a few weeks' time, but do just turn on to chapter 9 and verses 8 and 9 of uh, the book of Amos. Judgment, they're going to get wiped off, the the, the nation is going to get destroyed, they're going to be moved out of their land, they're going to lose all their property. The majority of the population are, are, are killed. But God can say, chapter 9, verses 8 and 9, Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command, and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve. And not a pebble will reach the ground, but all the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. So God says, I've made a promise to Israel, and the nation of Israel will always exist in some form. But individuals, well, that'll vary enormously. And and this nation is going to be shaken. It'll lose, to the second little box, uh, they will lose the blessings of the covenant in this life. So Israel years later, does get destroyed. They're driven out of their land. They lose all their property. They lose all the blessings. But there's still always a group left who truly followed the Lord. Because the truth about Israel is that it was always mixed. Some were true believers, what the prophets call the remnant of Israel, but others never really were. Now, what do you do with that in, in, in the new covenant age and as Christians? Well, you say the individual Christian can never lose salvation. So Jesus will say in numerous places, for example, John 10, verse 28, I'll never let anyone t- be taken from my hand. But the individual Christian believer can lose the blessings of salvation in this life. Passage is Hebrews 12, we'll be quite clear that God will discipline the children that he loves to stop them acting badly, to stop them from their sin, to make them grow up, to make them mature. He'll do that. You can lose blessings in, in this life. And in this life, any church gathering is going to be mixed. There are going to be those who are genuinely believers and those who, well, have sat around church for a while, but have never really tried to follow Jesus as Lord. They're quite happy to come along. But obedience? No, thanks. Not interested in that. 
And so Jesus would say in, uh, himself in Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 21, look, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Jesus is not quite the same then as now, but there are parallels. Amos said to the nation of Israel, you have twisted God's promise of an everlasting covenant with the nation, which is true, and you've said, no matter what we do in this life, God will bless us. He never said that. He said there would always be some who are his, but never, (laughs) never an unconditional promise of blessing. He says, Amos, to the nation of Israel, look, God, yes, he chose you, he adopted you, he redeemed you to be his people, but he did those things so that you would bring honor to him. That's why he chose you. He didn't bless you so that you could follow your own whims, worship whatever God you wanted. That is not why he saved you. And in that sense, the Lord would say to Christians, I have chosen you, I have redeemed you, I have adopted you, so that you would honor my name. I haven't given you these blessings so that you follow your own whims and worship whatever gods you want. And if you keep on doing that, well, it's a clear sign you're never really one of mine. You never were. Oh. Verses three to eight, Amos adopts a little riddle. Apparently, the culture of the time, everyone liked a little bit of riddling, so he gives them a little riddle to try and persuade them, move them onto his page. So he asks all these questions. Do two, verse three, do two walk together until they've agreed to do so? No. Does a lion roar in the thicket when it has no prey? No, give itself away. Does it growl in its den when it's caught nothing? No. Does a bird swoop down to a trap on the ground when no bait is there? No. Uh, Does a trap spring up from the ground if it's not caught anything? No. Um, When a trumpet sounds in the city, do the people not tremble? Uh, Ooh. Yes. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Yes. That's right. Statement, verse 7. Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. And so two more little questions. The emphasis falls on verse 8, having been broken up by verse 7, the statement. The lion has roared. Will you not fear? Oh, well, if, if God is threatening to judge us, well, probably we should. Yes. And I, the sovereign Lord, has spoken to me, Amos, who can but prophesy? Oh, okay. I guess. So God says to Israel, look, you've twisted my promise. You're privileged. You're blessed. But those are not unconditional promises. They are meant to transform you. And if you don't live for me, then you're not really recipients of those promises at all. I will not have spoiled children in my family. If you behave that way, you never belonged, so you must leave. Oh. 
So it's the first reason they felt safe, but they weren't. They've twisted a promise from the Lord. I'll be forgiven, and God will bless us whatever we do. No, he will not. Secondly, you've trusted false fortresses. Don't say that too quickly, you get in trouble. You've trusted false fortresses. Chapter 3, verse 9, down to 4, verse 5. You can see this is the word that dominates. 3, verse 9. Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt. Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. Well, that would have been a bit of a surprise to the uh, audience of Israel. Ashdod and Egypt, they're uh, immoral, pagan nations. How can God ask them to say, look, come on over, and you sit there, and you sit there, and watch how depraved these people are over there. But, but Israel will be thinking, no, no, we're the good guys. They're, they're, they're the nasty ones. But God says, no, come and watch. See the great unrest within her. See the oppression among her people. They don't know how to do right, declares the Lord. They store up in their fortresses what they've plundered, what they've looted, Fortresses, so I'm told by the, um, the, the scholars uh, and the archaeologists of the time, but sort of three or four-story houses which are secure. They're hard to break into. So they're less sort of luxury uh, and secure. Mansions, I guess we might call them today. If we were rewriting something like verse 10, we'd say, oh... Uh, the sort of uh, the, the super rich, they've accumulated their money and they've locked it up behind their gates of their mansions. That sort of sense to it. The Lord says they're not safe, verse 11. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, an enemy will overrun your land, pull down your strongholds, plunder your fortresses. They're not safe. Verse 12, this is what the Lord says. As a shepherd rescues from the lion's mouth, only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites living in Samaria be rescued. Not a lot's going to be left, in other words. It's a slightly oblique reference. Uh, in Exodus 22, were you a shepherd? And a lion came and nicked one of the, uh, the, the lambs, and you're thinking, oh no, I've got to tell the boss that one of the lambs has been nicked. Uh, what you're meant to do is wait for the lion to eat most of the lamb, that's eating. And um, uh, then you take a bit of bone back and say, look, boss, I didn't nick your lamb and try to start my own herd. Look, it really was eaten. So you take back the little bit that's left uh, as proof. Uh, and so that's what he's saying will be left of Israel. Just a bit of the lion will come, destroy, and what's going to be left? A bit of fabric from a couch, half a cushion, that sort of thing. Not a lot. You think your fortress will protect you? No. No, not your wealth. That won't do you much good. And the other side of the fortress, or the other type of fortress, is their, their altars. So verse 13, hear this and testify against the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I'll destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. Uh, a few years earlier, uh, we said this last time, uh, the nation of Israel broke in two. Ten nations, Israel, go off and form Israel in the north. Two stay behind and form the nation of Judah in the south. Now, the temple's in Judah, so what do you do if you're the breakaway king, Jeroboam I, and the people can't go to the temple where they're meant to? You make your own. So he made his own at Bethel and at Gilgal, uh, and so built these 
uh, golden calves, and they had, uh, uh, coming off the side of the altar, these big horns. And what the people thought they were told to do is, if you've sinned and done something wrong, just go and grab a horn and go, Lord, forgive me, and that'd be fine. As long as you grab the horn of the, of the desk, that'll be fine. It was always nonsense, and now God is saying, yeah, yeah, I know you do that, I'm just going to chop the horns off, then what are you going to do? Oh, nothing there. That's his point. Look, you think your wealth will protect you? It will not. You think your funny worship will protect you? It will not. Back to the mansions again, verse 15. These are affluent people. They've not just got their townhouse. They've got the house down in, uh, in uh, Cornwall and the place in Courcheval. Look, I'll tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. If you think your religious activity means you're safe, you are utterly deluded. Obedience I'm looking for. Look, if you think money protects you, you have no idea of how bad life can get. Then into chapter four, and he says the same again, really. He attacks both their wealth and their worship again. So chapter four, verse one, hear this, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks, darlings. Um, but don't get too upset. Chapter six, he goes for the men and the husbands, so don't, we'll get there uh, at much more length. Um, but um, to be fair, cows of Bashan, they're your sort of best in breed, as it were. So he's calling them cows, but the impressive cows. Um, <laughs> if you can put it in those sort of terms. They're sleek. They're expensive. A cow of Bashan is the most expensive cow you can possibly buy. I think the point here is, here's a bunch of women, they, don't, they only care about what they look like. Not their souls. Well, if you do that, you're just an animal. caring about what you look like, but not your eternal soul. They're not criticized for having money, clearly, but how they accumulated it. Verse one, they oppress the poor, and they crush the needy, and they say to their husbands, who cares how you make your money? Just keep paying the subscriptions at the health club, and keep paying the subscriptions uh, to the beauty products, and just keep buying my clothes and pour me another gin and tonic. They care about their bodies and not their souls, and therefore their self-pleasing brings a social malpractice. And so I guess again Amos would ask you, and he'd ask me, do you care more about your body than your soul? Do you spend more time worrying about what you look like? and money on your gym subscriptions and your clothing and your products, then you're a cow of Bashan, be you male or female. Moo. Well done. Or an unsettling question that we'll get to again later in the book. Are you content to expand your own wealth without a thought to how the most vulnerable in our society are living? Well, be unsettled by Amos's words. That is an unsettling question when you live in London. 
look, in verses two and three, you think life is so good and no harm is going to become you because you, know, you can insulate yourself. You are, you are fools. Verse two, the sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness the time will surely come. You'll be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You'll each go straight out through breaches in the wall. You'll be cast out towards Harmon, declares the Lord. But again, once it's not radically different from Jesus who just saying, I don't know, Matthew 13, look, be, be careful, the deceitfulness of wealth can choke you in this life. You can appear to make a start in Christian living, but wealth will just choke you, and you'll die as a Christian. Be careful there. Oh, look, money can give you choices in life. The more money you have, the more choices you have available to you but money will not nurture your soul and it will not protect your soul and it can very easily damage it. Yeah, miles more choices. More money, more choices. Privilege that. But it can really damage your soul. And don't think it'll protect you. Not in this life. People say, well, I haven't got much money. Yeah, or if it's not yours, but it's the bank of mum and dad. Will it protect you? No. And not into the next. But sorry, I, have, I, I, I am religious. Well, golly, verses four and five. Here is deep sarcasm from Amos. Yeah, look, go to Bethel and sin. Go on, well done, go to church. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Brilliant. Brilliant. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. The, 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 the translators have to amend that. It's actually bring your tithes every three days. And they say, well, that wasn't a re- requirement. You know, you, you're only meant to bring your tithes and some, every year and some of them every three years. No, I think that's Amos's point. You bring your tithes every, every three days. Go to church every day. Well done, you. Brilliant. Why don't you burn leavened bread as a thank offering, brag about your free will offerings, boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. What's wrong with their religious activity? I think verse five explains what's going wrong. They're doing it because they love to do it. They go to church for what it gives them. They're not going to church to worship God. They're certainly not going for the benefit of others because they're exploiting anyone they can for their own gain. Who can I tread upon to get ahead? Is anyone here useful to me? I'll talk to them. They're not useful, not interested. They've gone to church for themselves, not for God, not for others. Brilliant. Well done, you. Oh, dear. You've twisted my promise, says the Lord. You've trusted false fortresses. You think wealth, you think your worship are going to save you. You've ignored my warnings. Chapter 4, verses 6 to 13. Now, clearly, there's a change in focus here. No longer demands for repentance, but a list of the ways that the Lord has blocked Israel caused them difficulty. Five ways. It's a staggering list. But five ways that he's disciplined them. So, verse 6 I gave you empty stomachs in every city but you've not returned to me. Verse seven, I withheld rain from you when the harvest was months away, but you've not returned to me. Verse eight. Oh, many times, verse nine, many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, I destroyed them, but you've not returned to me. I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt. 
Wow, what a turnaround. I, I killed your young men with the sword along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps, but you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You're like a, a burning snick, stick snatched from the fire. You only just escaped from the Assyrian army last time, but you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. Here is a sobering truth. God allows his people to suffer pain in order to ultimately protect them or save them. God sends pain upon his people in order to save them from greater disaster. I read an article uh, a little while ago about a chap called Stephen Peat. Stephen Peat has congenital analgesia, which I've not heard of, but it's a genetic disease when you can feel no pain. So, you know, punch, you know, no pain uh, whatsoever. Uh, and as a young kid, his parents worked out something was wrong when he bit through his tongue. Not bit his tongue, bit through his tongue, and he didn't notice. And so he went to the doctor for various tests, and they do things like putting a, uh, a cigarette lighter under your foot. And he's like, yeah, what? What's going on? Feels nothing. So he spent most of his childhood with a cast because he kept breaking bones because he'd always push his body beyond what... It, you know, you and I would get to a point and go, ow! Uh, and that hurts. So he describes uh, going ice skating with some friends. And uh, he's just merrily skating around until everyone says, there's a lot of blood coming out of your trousers, and he'd broken a bone, and it was projecting through his jeans. But he's still, yeah, ooh. He's now aged 30, and his left leg is having to be amputated because it's been broken so many times. There's just nothing more they can do. But he says, of course, he's great anxiety, he's internal injuries, because the external can sort of be patched up. But he gives the example, you know, for you and me, if, if our appendix burst, we would know about it. Uh, and we would get straight down to A&E and they'd sort us out. Because if you don't sort out at a burst appendix, you die. For him, he'd never know. And so he'd die. It's a very sad read. And he called the article, The Agony of Feeling No Pain. The Agony of Feeling No Pain because, of course, for you and for me, when we get to the point of, ow, pain hurts, but it prevents greater disaster. And here the Lord is saying, Israel, I sent all sorts of pain upon you. I wanted you to go, ow, so you would return to me. But you've never returned to me. Pain physically and pain in our lives generally can be a warning to us so that we don't suffer the agony of eternal pain. The Lord says, look, I'll send the pain of no food, no rain, no crops, so that you avoid something far worse, my decisive judgment. Caution. Whoop, whoop, caution. There are many reasons for suffering in the Bible. Not all suffering that believers endure is discipline. Not all of it. Job, 
righteous man suffers all sorts of problems, not because of his sin, just because he suffers. Jesus, perfectly righteous man, suffers enormously, not because of his sin, but because of uh, the hostility of others. So not all suffering in this life is discipline. Not all suffering is God saying, wake up, wake up, or something far worse will happen. But it might be. And if you're anxious on that point, speak to people who are older, who are wiser. But you do see why the Lord does, did this to Israel. He said, I sent you this pain so that you'd return to me. And in the 21st century, he sends, on occasion, pain to believers. So they return to him. Actually, he sends it to all kinds of people so that perhaps they turn to him for the first time. His aim, his desire, is that we turn back to Jesus Christ and say, look, I, I need you. I need you for salvation. I need you to get into heaven. I need you for eternity. And I need you day by day because I'm conscious even this day I've done things wrong. He'll send pain so that we return to Christ. Mercy for our sins. Grace to change. To live lives which are pleasing to the Lord. Three mistakes that Israel made. You've twisted my promise. You've trusted false fortresses. And you've ignored uh, the warnings I've sent. And therefore, verse 12, this is what I'll do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, that is, send Assyria to destroy you. Prepare to meet your God. Now, there is a certain hint of ambiguity in verse 12. On the one hand, it is a summons to judgment. This is what I'll do. And yet, verse 12, he does still say, prepare to meet your God, Israel. Not the God, not the Lord of hosts, not the Lord Almighty, your God. There is still relationship there. There is still a chance. He's saying, look, you meet me in one of two ways, Israel. Either judgment at the hands of the Assyrian army, or you, well, you could meet me as the one who forgives you. Return to me. You can do that even now, Israel. Return to me. And it's the same word that the Old Testament also translates repent. And yet, that is how you become a Christian. You return to the Lord. You repent. You say, I've lived for myself. I've barely given any notice to you whatsoever. But now I, I turn and say, I need Jesus to pay for me. And I want to follow you. I want him as my Lord. It's the way you become a Christian. And it is the way you live as a Christian. On a daily basis saying, Lord, I return to you. Here I am this morning. Here I am this evening. A grumpy idiot. And I return to you. I am sorry for the things I've done, said, thought today. I'm so grateful for that I'm forgiven in Christ. Will you help me go again tomorrow? Try and live with you as Lord. I, I really do want to be one who honours your name. I want to be a child that you're proud of, not one that you look at and think, spoiled brat, I need to discipline them. So I return to you. But this is the Lord. Verse 13, I think it's probably a little hymn that he's quoting. 
It's not dissimilar to the one we've sung already this evening. He who forms the mountains, who creates the winds, and who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord God Almighty is his name. The one who takes nails upon his hands and bears the guilt of sinful man, the Lord is his name. So return to him. Return to him as the one who pays for you and forgives you and honor him or prepare to meet him as one you've ignored. You may have thought you're safe, but you're not. So return to him through Jesus Christ again and again. That's how we live this life as Christians. That's how we begin it. You return to him through Jesus. Let me hear some prayer. Father, you are the Lord. Would you please deliver us from the mistakes that your people were making back then, all these centuries ago, presuming upon your promises when our lives don't show that we love you, trusting in the wrong things that will not stand, our worship, our wealth, ignoring your warnings when they come, Would we rather be those who return to you and know you as the God of mercy who bears all our guilt, of grace who gives us strength and the power to change, to live lives which do honour you. Father, would we return to you? Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.